0: We're going through a renaissance period in consumer health right now. New tech-enabled products are coming out for sleep, telehealth, diet, nutrition, and more. This week's guest took us deep into what optimizing the metabolic function looks like. Seven of the ten leading causes of death in the U.S. are strongly related to metabolic dysfunction. Metabolic function improves energy, endurance, memory, mood, and cognitive performance. Josh Clemente has brought a bio-wearable metabolic sensor to market to help solve this problem. Levels is an innovative platform that pairs continuous glucose monitoring with an impressive software suite to provide the wearer with deep insights about their health. In advance of this conversation, Josh's team sent my wife and I both a Levels to see how the product works, and it was incredible. It provided us actionable health information and helped us understand how specific foods, exercise, and timing of day affected our metabolic health. This episode was a ton of fun. Josh's experience at some of the most innovative companies in the world, like SpaceX, and brought that experience to levels to build a next generation category winner in healthcare. Welcome, Josh. Thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thanks a lot for having me on. I'm excited to jump into this.
0: Yeah, Josh, excited to have you on the show today. We're, we're going to dive pretty deep into levels and the problem you're solving. But before we do that, you've had a really interesting background working on challenging problems at companies like SpaceX and, and Hyperloop. Tell us a little bit more about your background and how it led you to founding the company.
1: Yeah. Um... So I'm a mechanical engineer by training. I, I focused on thermodynamics and heat transfer in college. And essentially, uh, you know, I wasn't a great student my whole life. I was more so focused on just enjoying building things and specifically vehicles. So anything that moved people from point A to point B, ideally at very high speed, that's, that's the type of thing I was going to be interested in. So uh, that was kind of how I got fascinated by mechanical engineering and um, originally intended to go work at Tesla. But due to some interesting sort of circumstances around the company, they were like, they had just gotten a department of energy loan. They had just bought the new me plant in Fremont. They were moving their offices. My internship with them fell through and they recommended I I apply to SpaceX instead. And I had never really considered aerospace as a possibility given my aforementioned uh, grades were not the best, (laughs) but at the time SpaceX was a small scrappy startup without the attention of the big aerospace programs. So I was able to basically pre- present on a vehicle project that i had built in college and convince them that i knew not only how to design things and analyze them but also i could build them with my own hands and that's what they needed so started out there uh, as my first position and spent about 6 years at spacex uh, eventually leading the, the team that was developing high pressure uh, life support systems so the the breathing apparatus and cabin pressure control systems for the crew dragon spacecraft which uh, flew for the first time in 2020 and, uh, from there I moved on to hyperloop doing some very uh, early stage, like infrastructure, scale engineering and design, uh, some life support, specking and things like that. And, um, ultimately became through my own experience, obsessed with the human physiology and metabolism. Um, this was basically due to my experience kind of burning out through, through the process of just pushing myself way too hard for way too long and, uh, not understanding why the, um, decisions I'm making every day that were leading to poor lifestyle were essentially grounded in nothing. Uh, I, I just became acutely aware of the fact that I don't have a data stream of any kind of no objective, uh, information guiding me towards a better lifestyle. And that became very frustrating. The more I shown, basically once the, the light was shown in that space, I realized like yeah, this is a huge problem. It's an, an entire, like a vacuum in my life where I have, I have nothing guiding my decisions. It became increasingly frustrating for me. And that uh, ultimately led to some self-experimentation and uh, the, the concept and uh, experimentation that became levels.
0: Yeah. The the experimentation and kind of finding the ground truth, not being rooted in anything is, I think is especially interesting. We'll talk about that a lot in today's conversation, but I think it's especially interesting because it refers basically to this concept we talk a lot about in tech called first principles, right? And first principles is interesting because I think it's one of the most overrated and underrated concepts in tech simultaneously. Um, Overrated because it's just referred to so often that in some sense it loses its meaning and and underrated because if you actually do unlock it, it can be super significant. SpaceX is, is also an interesting example because first principles at SpaceX and a few select companies like SpaceX around the world really do mean something differently what does first principles mean to you and, and maybe kind of pair that out with an example from your time at SpaceX or, or hyperloop that really
1: illustrated that. Yeah. So it's, it's actually a surprisingly complicated concept to describe. It, it is uh, the way I like to think about it is, uh, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. And so when you start to add complexity, to the problem you're trying to solve, you're deviating from the straight line, which is uh, the connection between the problem you're trying to solve, simply stated, and the execution you're taking. So uh, another way to describe this could be analysis paralysis, right? Avoiding analysis paralysis. So I, I think when we talk about first principles, you're absolutely right, it's overused and underutilized. Um, and I think that you know the, the idea is that there is a core problem, that you are intending to solve, and oftentimes we get sidetracked by all of the complexities and shiny objects attached to that core problem, and we start to solve extraneous details as opposed to the execution that needs to happen. You know, the iterative process of solving the the core, fundamental physics-driven or chemistry-driven driven process. Um, so it, you know, to say first principles, it, it says nothing about the hardness of the problem being solved. So a lot of people often think, oh, that that only works for very very simplistic problems, like moving a you know a package from here to there. Uh, that's actually not true. No matter how how complex a problem, on paper, uh, the there are first principles associated with it. These are the the basic fundamental physical properties of the. challenge you're solving. So uh, very, very hard problems can be attacked from first principles. It's it's a way of organizing one's approach to to bias towards clarity of thought and um, iterative problem solving while staying kind of on that narrow trajectory. So anyway, a simple concept that, or maybe a simple example that could drive this concept would be while at SpaceX, the, every rocket that had ever been developed until Uh, 2015, put a satellite or a spacecraft into orbit, and then fell back through the atmosphere, broke up, dissolved or burned, um, or was shredded and fell into the ocean and was unrecoverable. And that meant that the aerospace industry was exorbitantly expensive and extremely inefficient. Every time uh, something needed to go to space, it required a new launch vehicle. The the exception to this rule was the space shuttle, uh, but we're focusing on on booster rockets. So uh, Elon... When we, when we first got the Falcon nine version 1.1 into orbit, he, you know, he stood up and he gave me what I think of as the best example of first principles speaking (laughs) that I had ever heard. And he said, okay, the rocket put the satellite in orbit, uh, but we didn't recover it just like every other rocket in history. Um, if we want to survive as a company, we need to be able to reuse rockets. And so what we need to do is we need to land them and reuse them. So in order to land, you need legs. So we're going to put legs on the rocket and it's going to land and we're going to reuse it and it's going to just come in backwards and we're going to fire the engines up to slow it down and it's going to land on the pad. And he literally talked through this, like an eight-year-old kid would talk about a simple problem. And, and that's key. And I actually think a requirement of first principles thinking is to simplify language as well as simplifying concepts. And ultimately the way the Falcon 9 rocket lands and is reused is it comes in backwards, it fires up its engines, it slows down, spreads out legs and it lands on a launch or on a landing pad or on a drone ship. And uh, there had been decades of research that demonstrated through analysis that that was impossible, that hypersonic retro propulsion, which is where an engine is coming in uh, into the windward side of the atmosphere and uh, the engines are exposed to this. Uh, giant, essentially, cloud of uh, of the atmosphere at high pressure and high speed that, that it would be, it would be impossible for a, a rocket to survive that, let alone start it start up again and uh, and and slow a vehicle down. And so, no one had ever tried it. And Elon just did it, and he did it on paying customers' vehicles. He, you know, we attached legs to to systems that were already heading up into space, and we built, tested, it, and iterated. And it took a few fiery explosions, but ultimately, aerospace has transformed. And so. Uh, making sure that until you have you have proven something wrong on the grounds of the physics, like there has to be a, a demonstrated, there has to be evidence that this can't be done uh, before you assume that that problem is unsolvable. Uh, I think that's the, the clearest example. And, and just being um, unafraid to, re- to make recommendations that might sound stupid to an industry professional, I think is another core requirement.
0: It's interesting the way you framed that, Josh, because I'm, I'm hearing kind of two things from what you're saying. One is the importance and kind of the concept of first principle thinking. But I'm hearing almost an equivalently important concept, which is the importance of simplicity um, and uh, simplicity in language and communication specifically. Right. And I think at SpaceX and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think at SpaceX, there there's like a SpaceX is known for this, that there's like a rule against jargon or so. Um, and I, I, found that really interesting. I want you to unpack that concept, especially from the experience of having been at SpaceX. Um, and then we'll use that kind of to parlay into levels and, and, you know, implications when you're solving really difficult problems, right? Why this need for leaving jargon on the sidelines actually ends up being, you know, uh, extremely critical.
1: Definitely. Yeah, so um, it is true that there there's a no jargon policy at SpaceX, and that one's a little bit harder to enforce. But the easy one that's enforced rigorously is the no acronyms policy. So if you if you open up uh, a, a standard aerospace requirements document uh, from kind of old, the the old aerospace or or kind of incumbent aerospace, you're gonna see. Uh, Word salad. It's it's a lot of placeholder acronyms that mean long names for certain projects and subprojects beneath them, and all the way down to the part level, the entire vehicle is enshrouded in this essentially cryptography. It's uh, it's impossible to know what you're reading unless you have the key, right? And to have the key takes decades. You have to become familiar with all these acronyms. So from the earliest, uh, you know the the executives at at SpaceX eliminated acronyms as a means of uh you know towards this end of eliminating jargon the reason for this is um you are building artificial walls against individuals being able to contribute regardless of their capabilities or their demonstrated credentials if that makes sense so when you when you kind of insulate credentialism by ensuring that only people with the appropriate credentials will be able to contribute to a conversation you're unnecessarily eliminating the tails of the contributors. Um, and so I've seen this time and time again at, at SpaceX and elsewhere, where when you speak in simple terms, not only does it enforce that first principles thinking, because the conversation is necessarily grounded in the larger concepts that you're trying to resolve instead of the complex, you know, sort of uh, exterior um, superfluous problems. And secondly, opening it up to anyone. So whether this conversation is um, immediately going to be contributed to by someone who who may not have, who may have a a third-person perspective or uh, an outsider perspective, or uh, maybe is recorded and distributed and someone could potentially absorb that information more effectively and use it for their own project. Um, I think that ultimately simple communication and the reinforcement of it across organizations is powerful um, and I think it is a key, you know, it's, it's really funny to listen into, I think engineering conversations at a place like SpaceX, because it is, it is so simplistic. The language is like, it's almost a competition to explain like I'm five all the time. And I, you know, originally was put off by it. And I thought some of these people sound like really unintelligent. And then initially, and then once you're like kind of initiated into it, you realize This is powerful. Um, You don't have to impress people with the words that you know and the acronyms you're familiar with. You can simply put an idea out there that uh, potentially in another forum would be embarrassing or would be uh, a a potential for you to be, I think ostracized or identified as an outsider. And so it's um, across the board, I think it evens the playing field and provides opportunity for rapid iteration while maintaining first principles conversation.
0: So let's talk about Levels because rapid iteration is, is especially an important part of, of the company and the product. The product is, is awesome. You know, my wife has been using it. We were talking a little bit about it, you know, before before we started the, the discussion. Um, but before jumping into the product specifically, Josh, just give our listeners a better understanding of what Levels is as a company, right? Systematically what you're trying to solve um, and, and what's the scale of the problem at hand.
1: Yeah. So levels is the first bio wearable system that uh, answers the question, what should I eat and why? And this is a surprisingly complicated problem. If I were to ask the majority of people, what are you going to sit down and eat lunch today? And why are you going to choose that? Most people give me a blank stare and they Then they they then give me something like, well, I read this recipe this weekend on the New York Times, or uh, I saw an Instagram person post this and they said it was really healthy, or my mom used to make this, or it just tastes good. These are all perfectly good answers, but they are not the answers that you need if you're trying to determine, is this healthy for me? Is this the right decision for me? Um, And so what we're doing is using real-time data from wearable devices. Uh, the first one is a continuous glucose monitor. Uh, glucose is the sugar molecule that most of us uh, are powering every cell in our bodies with. Um, so we are monitoring this data in real time and, and then analyzing it in the Level software to provide insightful closed feedback loops. So essentially showing you the reactions to the actions you're taking every day, and helping surface opportunities for better choices, whether those are nutrition-based, exercise-based, uh, sleep, or stress management-based, helping to surface those opportunities for little micro-optimizations. So the the reason we're solving this or working on this problem is that it is a it's a silent epidemic, and the scale of it is kind of beyond most people's perception. So the the metabolic health crisis extends um to well the current state and i'll just throw some statistics out here to try and kind of drive it home but um a, a study in 2018 showed that 88% of the United States is metabolically unhealthy by at least one metric 70% of the United States is overweight or obese 90 million Americans have pre-type 2 diabetes 84% of those 90 million don't know that they have it so they are un- unaware that they are trending towards type two and 70% of them are expected to convert to full-blown type two diabetes within the next 10 years. So this, this problem is continuing to move uh, earlier and earlier in life and younger and younger people are being affected all the way down to the ages of five and below. So there are pediatric endocrinology experts who are highlighting these cases where children have type two diabetes, which is an adult onset or historically has been considered to be an adult onset due to chronic lifestyle decisions. Um, All of this to say that the the metabolic crisis and we can get into what metabolism is specifically in just a minute but the crisis is is so bad and it's actually uh it's getting worse at an increasing rate so globally the world is getting less healthy um, at a at an increasing rate as countries become uh, more developed they become a bit more sedentary typically as information jobs take hold the food supply becomes more processed in order to allow for uh preservation and distribution. And so you have these two, I think, rapidly coupling um, lifestyle factors that lead to increasing rates of this sort of uh, disorder. And so Levels is attempting to attack this problem, not by solving the world's problems with a, a single policy or a single diet, but rather by decentralizing it and giving each individual the information they need to make better choices in the moment multiply that by enough people and you have resolved, you know, the same social scale problem, or, or at least that's how we see it.
0: And so outside of the scale of the problem, why metabolism and glucose specifically, right? Why are those the elements you decided to focus on? Um, and, and how do we, how do we think about those two elements specifically, you know, when we're thinking about health systems? So
1: metabolism is the, you know, essentially that is defined as, the set of processes that our cells use to generate energy from our food and our environment. So sunlight, uh, other environmental factors like that. And then of course the molecules in our food. So when you think about that, it's actually a really critical process that we oftentimes completely ignore. So um, your brain, your muscles, everything in your body is consisting of living tissue, the cells of which require energy to continue to survive and certainly require energy in order to function optimally. When the metabolic systems start to uh, dysfunction or experience dysfunction, the the effects are pretty widespread. You can imagine the number of systems in the human body, all of which consist of different cells. If a certain number of them or a a large majority of them begin to malfunction due to the effects of a poor metabolic uh, set of processes, You'll start to see this show up in a number of ways, and we call these a whole bunch of different things. You know, uh, some of the metabolic effects that we're seeing at scale in society are not just type two diabetes, which we all commonly think about, cardiovascular disease, stroke, cancer, uh, PCOS, which is the leading cause of infertility in the United States, uh, sexual dysfunction. All of these have deep metabolic roots. Uh, Alzheimer's disease, which is one of the top 10 causes of death in the United States today is being called type three diabetes because of the insulin resistance in the brain that actually drives that, that, uh, late onset dementia. So all of these things are kind of called certain names and they are, uh, approached with different symptom care, but they come down to a single concept, which is the metabolic system, the way that our bodies break down the foods we pro- provide and uh, are then able to um, allocate those resources towards energy production. When those systems start to fail, we see these side effects. And that's why we've chosen to, to target metabol- metabolism specifically and glucose um, exclusively for, for now. The, the, I can give some specifics on glucose in, in just a second, but uh, suffice to say that glucose is the, the number one analyte that our bodies are currently generating energy off of and the dysfunction of glucose is closest related to all of the aforementioned metabolic disorders. So it's the, it's the earliest target. It's not the only target, but it's the earliest one that we want to get people thinking about and start optimizing for.
0: And so how does the product work? There's, there's a hardware component. There's a software component. Talk about how you're attacking the problem.
1: So, uh, historically the, you know, the people that are most interested in managing glucose are people who have uh, an active sort of diagnosis of diabetes. And this could be type one diabetes, which is uh, typically an autoimmune disorder, or it could be type two diabetes, which is uh, considered to be a chronic lifestyle related uh, onset in both cases. The glucose and insulin, which is a hormone that manages glucose, the glucose insulin feedback loop is broken and blood sugar levels start to get really out of control. Uh, This has a ton of detrimental effects across the body. And it's really important for people who have diabetes to be able to measure and manage in real time uh, their blood sugar levels. For this reason, a a technology was developed over the past few decades called uh, the continuous glucose monitor. And this device is a little patch and it has a small filament on it. And that filament's a little flexible sort of uh, fishing string type thing. And that sits in the skin a few millimeters below the skin surface, and it's directly measuring molecules of glucose in the blood, or really it's, it's what's known as the interstitial fluid, which is kind of a filtered uh, subset of the blood. And by measuring those molecules directly and streaming the data to the smartphone, people with diabetes were able to uh, immediately take control continuously of their their blood sugar care, as opposed to historically pricking their fingers, bleeding on a strip and uh, measuring a single point in time. So what Levels is doing is essentially building on this incredible technology that is being used for a a very important and and necessary reason, uh, but building on the use case for it and moving it from strictly therapeutic. So essentially waiting until something has broken to pay attention to it. Uh, over to a more wellness and general, general health awareness use case. And so this is essentially trying to get people aware of the implications of the choices they're making. So we're building a, essentially an insights layer on top of the hardware that pulls in the raw data, interprets it with machine learning algorithms, scores the decisions you're making, and then feeds that data back to the, the end user in a timely fashion, coupled with educational material. The, the goal is to close feedback loops in as short a period of time as possible between actions we're taking, reactions we're experiencing, and then recommendations for alternative actions. Um, and, and through this, we feel confident that rather than, again, waiting for the system to fail before we start to measure, we instead can, can manage up front and uh, allow people to optimize rather than, you know, kind of slowly over time diverging into dysfunction.
0: And let's dissect the nuance of, of that measurement, right? Because there's a ton of companies on the market trying to measure some piece of the stack, whether it's steps, pulse, you know, you you name it sleep cycles. Um, you know, Apple has come out and made a declaration that healthcare is going to be their line in the sand over the next decade. So a lot of folks are thinking about this. A lot of folks have different different approaches to it. Um how is how is levels different and differentiated in this in this space, right? Um At a a top level, I think to a layman or or to a non-scientific person, you know, hearing tracking of things sounds similar, but there's clearly, right, differentiation and underlying elements that that make this unique. Um, So talk a little bit more about, you know, what specifically levels is measuring and then how it differentiates from from other
1: wearables in the space. Yeah, so um, historically wearable devices have been, um, and, and this is not... Detrimental in any way, but they've been measuring superficial markers that you can kind of measure on your own. So, for example, step count, uh, pulse, things like that. And these are useful, especially in when contextualized. And, and companies like Whoop and Aura and Eight Sleep are all taking that raw data on your pulse and your heart rate variability and feeding it back to you in an insightful manner to help uh, create behavior change around the specific lifestyle that you're trying to improve or the lifestyle factor you're trying to improve. Uh, levels goes deeper in that we are we are below the skin. We're measuring molecules in the body in real time, and this is essentially opening a massive new market for uh, closed feedback loops with bioinformation information associated. Uh, rather than waiting for an external factor of some kind, we we can now measure chemicals and estimate or directly measure the. Uh, responsive chemicals that are effectively driving our quality of life and our quantitative risk of long-term breakdown. So right now we're, we're just measuring glucose, but the roadmap includes, you know, a whole number of additional analytes. And I touched on glucose and insulin briefly, but the real driving force behind metabolic dysfunction, although, although associated with glucose dysregulation is actually that insulin hormone. So when we have, when we continually consume and don't burn through exercise, uh, high sugar, high processed, highly processed foods, we're spiking our blood sugar and correspondingly spiking our insulin, which is the hormone necessary to get blood sugar out into the cells. As that process repeats time and time again, day after day, week, weeks, months, years into the future, uh, eventually our cells seem to lose the responsiveness, the sensitivity to that insulin hormone. And this is known as insulin resistance, and it is the underlying if effect, the cause cause and effect, I think, of the behaviors we're, we're kind of, um, well, it is, the, it is the effect of the behaviors we're implementing, but it is the cause of the ultimate uh, breakdown in our tissues and, and our uh, quality of life. So with time, you know, levels intends to be able to, to measure not just glucose, but also these other analytes, uh, thinking insulin, thinking cortisol, thinking other factors um, associated with inflammation and long-term kind of uh, breakdown. So, you know, our intention is to couple all of this with world class data science and insightful behavior change so that we can uh, continually, you know, not just talk about better behavior, but help reinforce the habits that will create it uh, with these, these individual actionable molecules. So, you know, I, I welcome the, the attention from, you know, the largest and, and best hardware providers in the world uh, to this space. I think it's necessary. It's, the, in my opinion, it is the largest problem facing society, and uh, it is not. Necessary that we kind of all fight over the same the same space. I think we're going to be able to be complementary and, um, as a unit, kind of advance the the state of understanding of how, how large this problem is and how best to resolve it.
0: Yeah, let's let's talk about how much surface area has been covered in in the wearable space, right? I think one of the things that's interesting to me, Josh, is um, certainly the advancements in technology and the technology layer you were just describing. I think there's also A a social psychology layer that's evolving as well, right? So, if you think of kind of the majority of human history, the challenge was getting enough resources. Um, You know, now the challenge in many senses is actually shutting things out, right? Instant delivery, instant taxi, instant connectivity, right? It's more and more and more information, you know, that comes to you and it, it creates a whole slew of different issues. It also creates significant opportunity, right? In healthcare, it allows us to move, you know, more from a reactive model with long feedback loops. To a proactive model, you know, with faster iteration. I'm curious how you think about, you know, kind of where we are psychologically as well as technologically in terms of the backdrop of the context of levels and, and specifically, you know, how you think about how much surface area has been covered in the wearable space. So are we in the first inning, third inning, seventh inning? You know, what are what are we good at solving right now and, and where is there still opportunity to run? I know a really big question, but how how do you think about that?
1: Well, I really like the first uh point you touched on there, which is that the world is changing. And, and for a vast number of people, the scarcity um, scenario is no longer the threat. It's the abundance scenario. Um, a, a way to kind of put a point on this as it relates to metabolism is for the vast majority of human history, we have been, uh, human beings have been kind of roving bands looking for uh, their next calories and a lot of fasting, a lot of physical exertion, and uh, very, very few opportunities to eat large uh, amounts of sugar. And sugar is is a super fuel. It's, uh, it is what, it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's like nitromethane for our, for our bodies, the cellular engines in our bodies. Uh, The problem is that we now have the ability, you know, after only a a hundred years, 200 years of agriculture to essentially short circuit the, the body uh, in the sense that you know, we we've been developing agricultural methods for long periods of time, but we've now been able to amplify the the processes through the industrial revolution to the degree that an individual can sit down and in a single sitting consume more processed food and more high energy, uh, calories through carbohydrates and and fats than a prehistoric human would have had in their entire lifetimes. And this is the underlying issue that we're facing is, is truly energy toxicity. Um, so we, you know, one thing I like to, to think about here is that the challenge is recognizing that that is the reality. You know, oftentimes people don't have, we don't have the context of all of human history. We have our lived experience and everyone around us is living the same lives. We are calling Ubers and calling Uber Eats and, uh, you know, flying across the country and, uh, you know, working out through VR goggles, you know, it's, it's becoming this, this kind of increasing, we're all in lockstep with each other and we look to our left and our right and everyone's doing the same thing. So this must, must be what's normal, what's healthy, what's what's what everyone else is doing. And we have to challenge all of those preconceptions because ultimately it is what is leading us to a a decline in longevity for the first time, uh, really in the developing record, Uh, you know, in the United States for the last three years, Humans are dying earlier than they had previously, so um, all of this requires, I think, uh, a, a lot of attention, a lot of education. People need to, to accept that this is the case, and we need to then start to focus on the social components that are driving it. Um, but it also, as you mentioned, is it's a significant opportunity. Uh, we have a microelectronics revolution that has made the the cost of processing power and and you know the size and scalability of uh, of uh, you know battery powered components really attainable. And we now have the opportunity to develop technology like the continuous glucose monitor and, and so by kind of taking the tools of abundance that (laughs) are positive and turning them to, to towards, I think the opportunities for more contextualization of what's good and what's bad. So helping to surface the insights that have now kind of retreated from view. Um, I, I like to kind of use an example you know, we, since we were always on the hunt for our next calorie, our bodies evolved to reward us for any calories we could get in. So, uh, there is a, there is a natural, you know, feedback loop in the form of taste that rewards us instantaneously. We get dopamine hits for finding a sugary meal. Uh, there is no evolutionary driver that that created a negative feedback loop for food, for overconsumption, really, uh, or for the the healthiness of a of a calorie. It was all about getting as much energy as possible. So now, in the, in the abundance society, we have to supplement ourselves, and I think we can do so through technology. So we can develop those secondary layers of sensory feedback to tell us, hey, you you may not feel any acute pain. But what you what you're doing day after day is actually leading you closer and closer towards uh, a dangerous situation. Um, so I think that's where healthcare ultimately is going. And we're we're very early. You know, I would say in terms of innings, we're, we're inning two or three. Uh, there's we're starting to break this open. We're seeing uh, the advancement of telehealth and the advancement of uh, machine learning in uh, in, you know, pattern recognition for cancer detection and for uh, MRI and x-ray results. We're seeing all of these technologies kind of making their way into healthcare and supplementing the care provider. And I think the next wave is bringing wearable data from the, again, as I mentioned, like the superficial layer where we're, we're counting steps and such to the point where the every conversation within healthcare is based on a deep record of data for the individual, not just how their bodies are responding, but the inputs that they're providing, uh, you know, that the individual is, is providing themselves day after day. So uh, in the context of levels, you know, this is, it's still early We're we're demonstrating that people, you know, this is not something we have to, in, you know, enforce or force on the world. People want this, they want to be healthier. They want to know how to make better choices each day and specifically how to make personalized choices for themselves. So I, I think we're we're kind of showing that this is a possibility, and that people will adapt it if you can make it convenient and intuitive. And I'm looking forward to working hand in hand with you know the healthcare system in the future to um, you know to make sure that this is not just something that the you know kind of the individual health seeking in person uses, but but that each each person who needs access to this information um, that they can get it and that that, that they can use it to uh, create an intuitive lifestyle for themselves.
0: Yeah, I think the concept of a, of a holistic view on variables is, is, is really interesting. What I mean by that is, you know, we've, we've traditionally looked at things, uh, we've looked at a, a variety of variables, but we've looked at them in isolated ways, right? So, you know, what's the food that I ate? What time did I sleep? You know, et cetera. Um, and I think one of the interesting things, you know, we've observed in, in using the Levels product. Has actually been the ability to get granular and understand how the variables interrelate with one another. So, um, you know, if I eat, um, you know, if I eat something at this time, and then I exercise after, the combination of how did all those things affect me, versus you know, uh, just looking at you know one variable or the other. I think conceptually, for most folks, it's it's easy to understand. You know, why more data and understanding of data would create better decision making. I'm curious from, you know, from your layer and your perspective where you've seen this horizontally across a lot of different folks, um, what are some of the more non-intuitive things you guys have observed in building the product? And then, um, in, in relation to digesting those non-intuitive things, how have you guys reacted or, um, or evolved from that? And what's, what's the impact been on folks that are using the product? Yeah, it's
1: a, it's a great question. You know, there's a, the interesting thing I, I think uh, about using a device that is measuring molecules in your body is that it um, it immediately creates this short path between the body and mind, and it becomes, I think, a a different conversation with oneself. Where previously um, it felt very challenging for people to get the motivation to stick to a new set of goals, like I want to get healthy, I want to lose weight, I'm going to avoid this group of foods as per this diet that I found on the line online. And uh, it's going to take intense motivation to make it through those, those moments of, uh, of temptation, but I'm going to do it. Right. That's kind of how things have historically been. That conversation has totally changed in a, a, a really elegant. And I think it, for me, a non-intuitive way when you bring real-time data for the individual into the conversation. So now that person who is, who is saying, I, I want to achieve this goal they are then getting feedback from their own body with no middleman, with no individual in the middle, interpreting it for them and giving it to them in a patronizing way. It's instead I do something and my body tells me directly whether or not that fit with my goals. And it, it, it's, it ceases to be a discipline or a motivation determine determination. It's um, it's now, I don't want to, I don't want to continue doing that thing because my body does not, is not able to, uh, I think effectively manage in that environment. And I now have for the first time that feedback layer. And and so I think that's been the most non-intuitive thing is that like, that this would transform the entire conversation that people are no longer, they're not coming to us and saying my, you know, I had a, a huge blood sugar elevation from oatmeal oatmeal this morning. and uh, I just want to ignore it. That's that's, I don't believe it. You know, it's, it's, I had this on, you know, I've been doing this thing every single day, thinking that it was better for me because I, I want to avoid, you know, for example, I want to avoid doing inflammatory things that could potentially lead towards cardiovascular disease. So I've, I've been trying to eat a heart healthy diet and oatmeal, you know, all the labels say heart healthy. Uh, but this morning I, I ate it and my blood sugar was, you know, in this crazy elevated range all day. And then it came crashing back down and I felt this headache and all of these symptoms that I've been experiencing day after day, but I had no idea uh, why and And now I just want to know what to do instead. You know, so people are, it's like an instantaneous switch flips and that, that individual grasps what's happening. It's an abstract concept that they've now seen and they, they are able to then go and, um, you know, implement something different and they feel great about it because they're seeing that now positive response to the new action. So um, a lot of this comes from, and, and the reason that like we are taking this personalized approach is because it comes from this layer of research that we've recently uncovered with this same technology, which has shown that the individual variability in how people metabolize foods is dramatic. Um, so there was a, just one study I'll, I'll highlight from 2015, which showed that two people can eat the exact same two foods. And in this example, they, there was a banana and a cookie made with wheat flour, and they can have equal and opposite blood sugar responses. And the implication there is that they're also potentially having Im- equal and opposite hormonal responses, insulin releases to that that meal, um, and all of the downstream effects associated. So, uh, you know, that's really where I think all of this intuitive, non-intuitive stuff comes in, where people have assumptions. They're they're like, I fi- I feel weird about this, but you know, whenever I eat this thing, but my friend, you know, she, she says it works great and she eats it every day and she feels awesome. So people push themselves through this sort of introception that they're experiencing and they either ignore it or they follow uh, something else. Uh, but then one day they, you know, they try levels and they realize, yeah, I knew it all along. You know, the tapioca flower is putting me through the roof on my blood sugar and it's not affecting my friend the same way. And so you start to see that there is, uh, you know, you, you, can create these sensory feedback uh, or sensory mechanisms where you can identify a qualitative experience you've been having uh, and then couple it with a quantitative result from your body. And, um, and that's really empowering for people. And I think one of the, you know, these are all the sort of secondary layer effects of what we're doing that we had not anticipated, you know, kind of coming to the surface so quickly, but it's, it's what most people were feed back to us.
0: We, we've talked about closed feedback loops a couple times, kind of in, in some of the uh, some of the discussion points we've had. I, I want to take a pause and kind of define that for folks that are listening um, to make sure we're we're on the same page of what that actually means, um, because of the importance of that fundamentally to the level system and the levels product. And and I'll give an example. You know, I, I think uh, one of the things I was thinking of in, in preparation for our conversation, Josh, is kind of this concept of how much does real time measurement actually matter. So I think there's there's a there's a perspective on how much it matters from a mindset and behavior change perspective, right? And I think that's where we've spent kind of the majority of the time with this idea of closed feedback loops. Um, and then there's a scientific perspective, right? In terms of how much real time measurement or you know what the parameter of frequency of measurement and its importance is on scientific. So let's talk about closed feedback loops, right? What that actually specifically means. And maybe we can use the example I just diagrammed out or another example from your mind, you know, on how to think through how that affects, you know, the scientific side and the the mindset and the behavior side.
1: Yeah. So I think the the concept of closed feedback loops kind of comes from control systems theory. So you have, um, let's just say you have a a very simple machine that, um, it has a motor on it and then it has a controller and that controller, you know, it's a, it's electric, electro actuated uh, system that controller can extend the arm or, or retract the arm. Let's say, um, if the controller doesn't have a sensor telling it where the arm position is, it can overdrive. So it can be extending the arm all the way and continuing to try to extend it because it doesn't know where the arm is. It's an open feedback loop. Essentially the extension and retraction of that system doesn't have feedback to the controller. So it doesn't know where its position is and it's essentially flying blind. So a lot of old school systems um, are this open feedback loop and a closed loop system would be where that same system Uh, That that same mechanism has a little sensor on it and it now tells the motor controller exactly where the arm position is. And so every action that the motor takes every time it extends or retracts, it knows the exact position that the arm moves to, and it can then use that to estimate how much further it needs to move in either direction. Um, that's a very, you know, kind of a simplistic one, but cruise control in your car is another one, you know, old cruise control systems. You can set them at 60 miles an hour and that car will drive itself right into a brick wall. Uh, there are newer cruise control systems that have, they use an array of sensors on the car exterior to sense other traffic and to slow itself down, speed itself up, et cetera. And that's a closed feedback loop where it's taking into account its surroundings and the inputs that it's providing, the output that it creates for, for the machine. Um, human beings are flying in an open loop system. We, we, are, we are flying blind every day where the actions we take, so the foods we eat, do not give us any feedback until... oftentimes years or decades later. So for, for most people, this is, uh, you know, waiting for the bathroom scale to start climbing to an uncomfortable point or waiting for their doctor to say something like you have a condition. That's the point where we start to think, okay, I need to, uh, I think I need to make some changes, but the problem is because those feedback loops are so long because we're waiting years for the bathroom scale to change or potentially decades for the doctor to say something, we are not able to identify the specific behaviors that are leading to this negative outcome. So as it relates to, to levels, um, this is where closed feedback loops come in and also the real time nature. So the, the tightness of the feedback loop really matters. If you want someone to understand whether or not the meals they're eating each day are affecting them positively or negatively, you can't tell them two weeks later that that lunch, uh, you know, two, two Wednesdays ago was bad for them. Uh, what you need to do is connect. The reaction to the action in as as close to zero minutes as possible, because that's how learning happens, right? We, we experiment, we see some, some response to our experimentation and that influences behavior change. You touch a hot stove. It it hurts. You, you immediately remember that. um, And that's embedded as habit. So that's what we're trying to, to replicate is the, you know, and, and not to sound negative, like this is not about all touching hot, hot stoves. It's about uh, closing the, the feedback loop first with a, with a data stream and then making that as short and as tight as possible, because that's where the, the habituation of a lesson learned occurs for, for human beings, especially when it is their own personal data driving that habit change. You know, it's not, again, it's not someone else's. We're not talking about population averages. We're talking about your body responded in this way, just minutes after that meal. And that drives, uh, you know, I think a lesson home.
0: What are the biggest challenges today for the company? Is it, is it behavior change needed in consumers? Is it technology? Um, you know, what are the challenges and how you think about solving them? Cause I think levels is interesting from the perspective of, you know, once you have a discussion like this or, You know, um, let's say you do your research, and and a lot of the consumers, by definition, that are coming to you are ones that actually want to make behavior shifts or are not feeling great, right? And want to see a change in their personal lives. Um, And so I imagine, you know, maybe to go mass market, it might be a concept of behavior change, education, et cetera. But at least early adopters, right, are ones that do actively want to make that change. They want the tools and the mechanisms to be provided so they can do it more simplistically. Um, there's some, you know, advances in technology that have been made earlier, you alluded to, maybe we're in the second to third inning, right. And of course there'll be, you know, additional technology improvements to come. How do you think about what the biggest challenges for the company are today? And then, um, you know, the
1: roadmap to actually solving them. Yeah. You know, there, there are a number of, um, interesting challenges we, we get to, to approach with this project. And I think the, The largest ones are, we we touched on them briefly earlier, but it it is behavior change, but I actually don't think that that in and of itself is a challenge. It's kind of a a bucket of different challenges. And so there are are different people, different perspectives, and we're all individuals. I think the hardest problem to solve is entrenched social norms. So it's the the sort of um, consensus that occurs by default when we are all moving together in the same direction without full context. We have one generation's context, essentially. So, you know, our grandparents were living very, very different lives and their grandparents before them living very different lives. But then once you get far enough back, people were actually all kind of for, for many generations into history living similar lives. And so we're now moving at such a fast rate of change, but we don't, we don't recognize it. Uh, We, we think, Oh, since, you know, this is just how it is, how, how it's always been. Um, But what, what, you know what I think has to happen is we need to be able to zoom out and provide contextualization of human history and help people recognize that just because we're all doing it at scale today does not mean that it is good for us. And in fact, we have to challenge many of things of these things. We have to accept some some uncomfortable truths about um, how we we have gotten off, I think, off track a little bit with our with our lifestyles, and and then identify um, those social scale changes that need to be made and uh, you know, touching on things like food supply and, and the, the healthcare relationship where most of us, uh, are not using our, our personal data, our biological data, uh, in, in healthcare decisions or in lifestyle decisions at all throughout our lives. And so we need to, we need to fix these problems that exist, um, while simultaneously recognizing that, um, you know, it's going to take not just an individual deciding to avoid certain foods, but we need to then make those, those, um, you know, hard, I think those hard decisions at a social scale to completely, in some cases, renovate our, um, our systems and processes and provide access to alternatives for not just, you know, those among us with the the best means, but for everyone. And and this is going to be like a real process of, uh, it's going to be a a multi-year, multi-decade process to get to the point where we as a society are 88% metabolically healthy rather than unhealthy. But I think that's the biggest one is just being, being willing to accept that, you know, in some cases not all innovation is good and and we've you know kind of taken it taken it to an extreme in, in uh in many areas of our lives so um yeah i mean not not very specific i know but i think it's just highlighting that for many of us we're complacent because um because we can look around and feel comforted that everyone's doing something similarly and uh, and yet i i think when you zoom out you see that we're kind of all driving off a cliff um simultaneously which is Avoidable.
0: (laughs) the The point you just made is
1: really interesting, especially with the with the statistic of
0: eighty eight percent. Because one of the things I think about, uh, and I'm sure you think about this all the time, it's not a core problem necessarily you're solving, you know, in your business or or anything that that needs to be solved for the business itself to be successful. But I think one of the interesting thought experiments is, you know, let's say we did solve that problem, right, Um, to a meaningful scale. Maybe all you know, eighty eight percent of folks, you know, challenges don't go away, but Let's say half of even those challenges go away, right? Um, I get really interested by what are the secondary impacts you know we start to see as a society. Um, right? I mean, at a, again, at a layman's or at a high level, implications for the healthcare system, implications for productivity, right, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I'm sure this is something, you know, you guys have thought about, especially in founding the company. So paint paint a little bit of the picture of, you know, if we were to solve this problem and levels won't be able to be the only one, it'll it'll take a community of of industry, of healthcare systems, et cetera. But, you know, if these problems were to be solved, how do you guys think about what society and what the world looks like?
1: Yeah, it's exciting to imagine because um, as you touched on the implications of metabolic dysfunction are um they're massive. They, it underlies. So metabolic disorder underlies physical disorder and mental disorder. You know, this is where, um, essentially the, the systems in our bodies start to break apart and the, you know, the immediate effects are that individual experiences, um, you know, symptoms and side effects, and eventually, uh, limited, independence and over time, uh, potentially even a shorter lifespan and depending on what it is. And, and and then the secondary effects are how that affects their, their family, their community, the productivity loss, the financial burdens. Um, and, and this goes on and on and ripples throughout our economy. And to the point where we, you know, in 2030, I believe the, the diabetes, the expected cost of type two diabetes alone is going to be over 600 billion to the United States. And it's a staggeringly, Massive problem, and yet you don't hear it being discussed uh, commonly. It's it's sort of the, uh, you know, it's sort of hidden or secondary to our more immediate conversations around things like the opioid epidemic or cancer or or these other, uh, you know, problems that we do discuss. But we don't talk about, um, you know, ultimately what I think is the elephant in the room. So, if we were to be able to achieve our our mission, which I'm optimistic that with time and with iteration, we will, we will get to the point where, uh, we, we get back the majority of our, of our health and, and, you know, at least half the population, I would hope should be able to achieve metabolic dysfunction, you know, in, in just the next decade or metabolic function in just the next decade. Um, in that scenario, you know, you have a situation where people are empowered with their own data in real time. So they now are making decisions that are, uh, not necessarily coached, but I think guided by objective truth, like they have information from their bodies guiding their choices. And this will create a more, I think a more informed consumer, which is really exciting. You can now imagine like uh, much of the problems in our food supply, many of which I I think are driven by misleading marketing uh, can't really exist anymore. When you have an empowered consumer, when you have an informed consumer who knows the effects that that specific product has on their bodies and they demand Not not only to not only do they avoid that product, but they uh, navigate towards a better one, a healthier option. When that happens at scale, uh, I think you end up with a food supply that kind of naturally corrects itself. The incentives change, and you have uh, you know producers being incentivized to to produce healthy products and distribute those to to everyone, which uh, obviously will allow those even without, you know, even those who aren't using a product like levels will benefit because the, you know, the pricing will come down to due to economies of scale, et cetera. Um, you also have a situation where I think the healthcare conversation can improve dramatically when when people are coming into their first conversation with a primary care provider with years of lifestyle data and uh, not, not just those inputs, but their, their molecular outputs, the, the, the biometric data that, that determines uh, overall health. When that's where the conversation starts, we're in a good place. So any healthcare provider I can imagine who is able to, to take a look at somebody's historical record and how, how they've been living and how that's been affecting them for, for years in order to determine you know maybe something that's going on that, that is not metabolic in nature, um, I think we're in a really good place as a society. You know, this is, we, we have big data that we're applying across the entire, you know, scope of society's problems with the exception of what we do every day to maintain health. Um, so I, I really look at the future as one where health data is used more like financial data. So, you know, the individual owns it. They're constantly t- staying up to speed on, you know, the sort of deposits, withdrawals, how the, the interest is compounding, you know, positively or negatively. Um, and then you can you can work with an expert to, to make a plan and project into the future. And, um, you know, I, th- I think that this is a, a really exciting opportunity in the, in the future for people to, um, you know, not just like financially plan for retirement, but then also be confident that they're going to be healthy enough to enjoy it when they get there type of thing. And, and so the, you know, it all comes down to, I think, unlocking the individual's information to them and then empowering these, um, you know, Empowering this at scale, and these secondary effects are are quite exciting, and I think they'll happen automatically.
0: Josh, final question as we round out the conversation, and it's it's one I ask of every uh, guest, especially you know high growth founders that we have on the show, and it's relevant to the space um, you know that each of these founders operate in. What's the one thing you believe about wearables
1: and health that others wouldn't agree with you on? Well, I I that's a good question. I mean. I think that wearables have been they've been maligned as useless and toys. And I think what I see is actually already, even the, you know, the Fitbits and the Apple watches of the world, I I think have made a healthier society and a more informed society. Uh, I know many people who uh, drive their sort of daily behavior change or the, or decisions off of the rings on their Apple watch. And, you know, I, I believe that those sorts of little, um, those little messages that um, are kind of subconscious now, but, but driven to a habitual layer um, are creating a healthier society. And this has not, I I think, been identified in research just yet. In fact, there's plenty of publications that say the opposite, that wearables create anxiety and wearables create uh, hypochondria and all of these things. But in my opinion, you know, we aren't facing a society that is threatened by hypochondria. We aren't, we aren't threatened by anxiety. We're, we're threatened by, uh, sedentary lives and, uh, the breakdown of our, our bodies. And so if people are getting up and getting a walk in to hit 10,000 steps, well, I've seen the effects of simple lightweight exercise, um, on my metabolic function after specifically after meals. And I think these little superfluous mes- messages, uh, are creating a healthier society. Micro optimization by micro optimization, and and so I personally believe that we're seeing massive benefit. It just hasn't been recognized yet, and uh, I disagree with a lot of the the research, which I feel like has um, a little bit of an agenda. <laughs> they want, you know, it seems like there's a there's a bit of a de- decision that's been made that these are um, gadgets and toys, and I want to push back on that and say that. Uh, wearable technologies are much more than that. There, um, and we're only scraping the surface. But I see it as, uh, you know, the the very beginnings of a technology that's going to change the world in a positive way.
0: Yeah, I think one of the interesting things, Josh, from from this conversation and just our experience with the product has been uh, hearing you say, you know, that you believe we're in the second and third innings, or so, somewhere in that range, and actually seeing the impact the product has had on our health, just being in that second and third inning um and so it actually makes me super bullish of, of kind of seeing you know what's what's in the future right i really appreciate you coming on the show today and, and sharing so many of your insights um some of these concepts are ones in which you know it's easy for folks to conceptually understand but i think it requires actually a nice uh guidepost to get over the cliff uh to see the impact that i can actually have on your life so really uh you know thank you for coming on really appreciated your insights and, and looking forward to continuing to see how you guys scale the business
1: well, thanks again a lot for uh, being such a strong supporter. And I'm glad to hear that uh, just the earliest versions of the product are, are resonating. You know, I, I truly believe, you know, and every day I wake up and work on these problems and I'm excited for the future because we're, we've taken a baby step, but there's so much potential to, to make significant impact. So uh, happy to be working on it. And I appreciate you bringing me on for the conversation.